uh, have you seen the movie Inside Out? Yes, yes. Okay, that is neuroplasticity at its finest. We have these core memories, but then when one of the core memories starts to get, get altered, then literally she begins to feel something different. So those of us that have been, you know, drinking and drugging and whatnot, literally the science of neuroplasticity is what we're all doing. We're all, we're all like re literally rewiring, reconnecting memories because what used to be fun to Lee and Archie, like the, the fun times, like now to, to, to us, that is almost days horrible. Um, that is why when, I'll just speak for me, when I see somebody that's in the throes of alcoholism or addiction, it is physically painful to me. It is painful because my brain now is wired to think this is not what I need. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spent every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same, like right now. I hope everybody's doing really well. Uh, I am recording this the day before my birthday. I think I'm 46, something around that dap. But you know what? I am feeling... Ah, Mentally, physically, spiritually in the best shape of my life. Folks, honestly, I'm absolutely killing it. I'm smashing it. Everything is going great guns at the moment in the life of Lee Davy. All because 10 years ago, I decided to stop drinking alcohol. I decided to get off the path of least resistance. I decided to invest in myself and I decided to just live a kick-ass life, right? And I really, really hope that you folks do the same. And today, I am going to be talking to Archie Messersmith-Bunting. Now, there's a name you probably haven't come across before, okay? The feelings guy. Now, can you recall the number of times you've asked someone how they're doing? Uh, we usually ask this question quite harmlessly, right? After meeting someone new or seeing a friend after a while. Uh, but more often than not, the answer we get is, I'm fine. But what if we change this question to something else? What if we ask, how are you feeling? In this episode, award-winning speaker and author Archie Messersmith-Bunting challenges us to focus on our feelings and ask people how they're feeling instead of how they are. He shares how this practice changed his life and put him on the path of self-rediscovery. Archie also tells us the importance of cutting toxic people out of our lives and standing up for ourselves. So if you want to stop being uncomfortable and fearful, then keep on listening. Three reasons why you should listen to this episode. You can gain valuable insights from Archie's struggle with homophobia and depression and how he learned to accept himself. You can learn how you can move on from your shameful experiences and discover why vulnerability is essential in making connections. So without further ado, I will shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Archie Messersmith-Bunting. Much love, everybody. Archie Messersmith-Bunting. I got to say, I've never met a Messersmith-Bunting before. <laughs> There's only three of us in the world, me, my husband, <laughs> and my son. That's it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I um, Yeah, you don't see many Davies, D-A-V-Y. Why? You see yeah. a lot of D-A-V-E-Y. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Messer Smith Bunting. Yeah. Yeah, when we like when we got long, married, we decided to to hyphenate, you know, like as you do, mm -hmm. like let's uh. let's have the let's have this really long name. But 
it doesn't fit on any airline tickets, not that anyone's flying, but it doesn't like it won't fit anywhere. So when our when our son takes those little SAT tests, remember the little bubbles you've got a bubble yeah, in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he's gonna get like half of his entire name, like you know, it'll be it. So So what whatever. what is his entire name? Say his entire name again. Our son's name is William Cade Messer Smith Bunting. <laughs> My daughter is Zia Phoenix Aye Lynn Davy. <laughs> Okay, you win. <laughs> what is going on, right? Like she has to have Aye because it's her Korean name. Right. And then we we had Lim David because when we got married, my wife didn't take my name. So and I, I was just like, just call her Lim. Just get rid of the Davy. I'm not, I'm not in, I'm not bothered with all that lineage stuff. But there you go. My feelings wouldn't have been hurt if the Davy <laughs> lineage had been severed. There you, you know? go. There you go. Tell us a little bit about your um, your story then, Archie. How did you become the feelings guy? Yeah, so the feelings guy is actually later in life, and it was an accident. It started as a it really started as a joke. I think is a lot of times really great things kind of started as, hey, what do you think about this? Because people don't want to think you're being serious, and then it was like, oh, that makes sense. It came about because even after uh, putting together strings of sobriety. You know, not putting a needle in my arm to make all the the hurt go away, like all that stuff. Uh, managing, learning to manage my mental illness. Um, I have, you know, I have clinical depression, so learning learning that it's okay for there to be loud noises up there. Like once I once I did all that, I still really wasn't waking up happy most days, and I was like, I did not fight back from hell to not be happy. Like, what is going on here? And I I went through this like period of self rediscovery, and I really realized that for me, I had been ignoring all these feelings I had, and also when I started focusing on my feelings and then giving a giving a rip about your feelings, things began to change. So I started uh, I have this like this mantra and this challenge in life that I want people to stop saying how are you today because that literally means nothing. It means nothing, and instead (laughs) say how are you feeling. Because when I ask you, hey, Lee, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. I've given you permission to actually share of yourself and things change. And so it, it became like a joke. And I was like, oh, let me see if the feelings guy is taken. And it was not. And so now it is. It's interesting you said I was um, I'm in a coaching container at the moment called The Leap. And I have an accountability buddy. Her name is Claudia. And we got on a call yesterday, actually, she's from Australia. And I said, how was your Christmas, Claudia? And she said, Mm, let me think about that question a minute. And I said, no, no, don't think about it because I honestly don't give a fuck. <laughs> she said, well, what did you ask me for then? I said, well, that's what we do, right? Yeah, we do. We just say things yeah. like, hey, Claudia, how was Christmas? How was your yeah. Easter? How was New Year? I don't care. And and she said, well, how could we rephrase that question? And I think what we come up with was, how was Christmas different this year than it was last year? There you go. There you are. Let yeah. me ask you that question. How was Christmas different this year than it was last year, Archie? Well, it involved a Zoom, which is not what I planned for Christmas. Uh, but it also, so uh, Kate is two and a half. So he's mm. just, he's old enough that he understands that like, wait, where did these toys come from? You know, and 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 so there were squeals and and last year he just kind of stared at them. Like I had everything, you, know, you know, Santa came, we laid all the stuff out. He just like looked at it and I was like, and yeah, this yeah. year he like, it was so it was so exciting to watch Christmas through the eyes of a child. So that's yeah. what was different. Four. 
Zs four four is the time. I said to Liza, my wife, we've got two two years, I think, and until she's up at four o'clock in the morning. But <laughs> four four is the age where they really start loving it. Clinical depression. Can you ex- explain that to me and, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, so how I mean, it feels. Sure, sure. I mean, it's just a it's a it's a non clinical term. Like it's major depressive disorder is what I've been diagnosed with. But clinical depression is what people when you say major depressive disorder, they're like. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> um, yeah, so it just means that my um, my brain chemistry is a little a little rewired. Uh, now, I don't know how much of that I was born with and how much of it I did to it, to be really honest. Um, right. Like, I kind of feel like putting drugs in your body, especially the kind that I did. I, like, you know how when you're, you're, you're um, uh, putting a, a VCR together? And, oh, no one knows what VCRs are. Um, I do. I'm 45. I don't know what VCRs are. There we go. For the young people out there, think your DVR player or whatever. So you're putting VCRs together back in the day. And you've got to get the right plug to go in the audio and the right plug to go in the video. And if it's not like that, it will not work. And you Mm. can spend hours. I mean, remember spending hours like with TVs? Well, I kind of feel like that what I did was I just pulled all the wires out. And then we just kind of shoved them all back in. Um, and, and some went right with the, in the right place and some didn't, uh, right. that's kind of what I feel like my brain feels like. Uh, so, I mean, I take medicine today. I choose to take medicine. That's something Archie does, uh, to mm-hmm. try to regulate things up there. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've lived with this long enough to know that when the, when the cloud comes, that's what it feels like. Um, if you've ever seen the, the Charlie Brown, uh, characters, pig pen, the guy with the dust, that's mm-hmm. what it feels like to me that, and I just, I can't make it go away. So I, I'm, I'm often quoted as saying, you can't help feeling how you feel. And I believe that. I believe that mm-hmm. like feelings, feelings are going to come. But what I am in control of is what I do with that. Am I going to sit in it and just like live in this muck? Or am I going to own the fact that like, okay, it's back. It's one of these days. Let me see what I can get accomplished. But that's, that's, that's taken years of like practice to get on that balance beam and be able to walk it. How did the drug taking and the addiction fit into the depression? Hmm. Uh, well, you know, I don't guess I'll ever know which one came first, you know, wow. the chicken or the egg. I mean, for me, I grew up in the deep South in the, you know, late seventies, early eighties. It was definitely not okay to be gay. It was definitely not okay to not want to play football. So I grew up and I grew up in the church. So I grew up, you know, learning and being told that I was going to go to hell. That is mm-hmm. very traumatizing, uh, for a child and a teenager. And so I, 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 I left with all this like internalized homophobia that for me, when I started doing drugs and alcohol, it made all that go away. Now, I, I can't remember if the voices got louder or if the voices were always there. But, you know, when I, when I was using the committee was definitely really loud. But then I also if I got high enough, it would stop. So, you know, I began to like try to self-medicate myself, which doesn't really work. <laughs> um, but I mean, I sure tried. I gave it the good heave ho. But for me until, and let me just say, one of the things I, when I, when I kind of accidentally came upon you and I love what you're doing, because I I believe that everyone has to find their own path and there's a, there's a path for everyone. And, um, you know, for some people going to a church basement every night for the rest of their life is what works for them. That is not personally what's working for me. Um, But so I'm glad that there are other, other ways that people can find a path to healing and recovery. But, you, you know, for me, when I was starting trying to get sober, all we wanted to focus on was stop doing the drugs. Well, I was never going to get sober until we no. start talking about my brain. Like yeah. it was ne- like I, I mean, I can I cannot put drugs in my body. I'm still mental, like literally mental. So there, you know, there's a saying like put everything on the, else on the shelf. 
well, that didn't really, that approach didn't work for me. And mm. for some people, I'm sure it did, but it wouldn't, didn't work for me. So they kind of, they kind of yin and yang for me. Mm. Yeah. For people, for people listening, I'm always, I'm often quoted as saying, when you come to us uh, and you want to do the strike method for additions, now normally it's people who want to quit alcohol, you know, and we're like, we're not really going to focus on the alcohol, you know, the alcohol, yeah. it's just what it is, you know, like yeah. we want, we want to just have a really good look at uh, your yeah. life, what, what do you want to achieve and why you can't even think about what you want to achieve and just, you know, trying to just uh, help people to feel normal about being different and that everybody is different, you know? Um, yeah. What was it like growing up in the deep South talking about feelings now and in the church <laughs> feeling, I, I mean, I imagine at some stage in your, in, in your growth, you start to think that you're different to everybody else when it comes to your sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. How, how does that even, how does that even happen? What's going through your head and how do you fit into that triumvirate of terror? Yeah. Oh, that's that Trump. That is a, I'm going to use that. That is good. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's really confusing. And I think it's confusing because I'm going to I'm going to use religion and not the church on mm. purpose because mm. religion puts forth this. You're all welcome here. Come as you are. That is, can I say a bad word? I don't know if I can say a bad word. You say anything you want. Okay. That's complete bullshit. I mean, that like what it really is, is come as you are. If you look and act and believe exactly as we do, that's what it really means but I didn't know that. I mean, it was mm. come as you are. So I was like, well, then I fit in. Well, really, I, I don't fit in. So, you know, I, be, I was saying something the other day, I feel like that I had to spend time after I finally, you know, got the drugs and alcohol gone, looking back and going, wait, did that really happen? Did that memory actually happen? Or did I create that memory to be able to deal with what I was going through? Yeah. Because I mean, it's just this constant, like, internal battle to be the person that you want me to be religion, but yet knowing inside. And then when I finally figured out what it was, I figured it out the day I was homesick. I don't think I've ever told the story in public, but I was homesick. Oprah was doing a special about it was, she was on location in the South, which is where I grew up and a young person had contracted HIV through a blood transfusion. And so they were, this was really when the conversation of HIV was kind of becoming not just a gay disease, which is, you know, what it had been you know, labeled in the media. Mm. And so there were two sides of the audience, literally like going at it. And this, I remember this, this man in the audience, like red face screamed about, you know, the fags did this and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Oprah's trying to like, you know, we're on national television here. And so the, the, the homeless, he was like the homosexuals. And I, I remember like your, my brain was like, like remembering knowing what that was and going, Oh shit that that's me. Like mm. I, now, now I'm, now I'm never going to, to fit in like in. And so, you know, as you do in the South, you just take all those feelings and you put them in a nice little box and you just stuff it way down. And mm. then, then those feelings, what you're not taught is they just like stack up over time. Uh, but that, that's what it was like trying to, to be in the South and be of my friends and, you know, what I believed but yet you're going to go to hell. So that's this like constant struggle. Yeah. I mean, that is, uh, I can't think of anywhere worse to, <laughs> to grow up. Do you know Like I've, yeah. I've been living in America now on and off for a couple of years. I'm half Chinese. And whenever my wife says about traveling around the States, it's just, it's a place that I just don't want to go, which is, which is a shame. I was interviewing a poker player who lives down there and he says, 
you know, it's like I, I understand the view, the view, uh, you know, the perception, but it, yeah. it's pretty okay where we are. And you know what? In a way, that links to what you were talking about, the memories. And you said, you know, did, did I have that memory? Yeah. Or, did this really happen? I, I'm starting to believe, actually, I was having this conversation with my wife the other day, that our memories really come from, are a byproduct of whether we are coming from a place of scarcity or abundance. So hmm. give you an example. Mm-hmm. I've pretty much been in scarcity mindset for my entire life. Even when I, when I stopped drinking, I slipped into abundance and magical things happened, but then I quickly fell back into my default mm-hmm. of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Now, whenever anybody asks me about Christmas, when I'm in my scarcity default, all I can remember is how shit it is and how little I had. Recently, I would say in the last four weeks, I've stepped into hyperdrive abundance. <laughs> and now my wife is asking me questions about Christmas. And I remember that I had this, I had that, that mm-hmm. this was great, that that was great. And she said, but you've always said that Christmas is really bad. So you start to question, oh, I make this shit up because <laughs> resistance wants this yeah. story to be true. So I can keep drinking and sabotaging my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Think about that hypothesis. No, that, that makes it well. And actually it's, it's, I mean, you probably know this, but it's very scientifically sound. Um, I mean, if, if you, if you look at I the didn't, study of, I didn't, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it's very scientifically sound. So if you look at the study of, of neuroscience, so neuroplasticity, there we go. Hmm. It's, it's the brain's capacity to rewire and basically to reimagine and remember things. So um, the, uh, have you seen the movie inside out? Yes. Yes. Okay. That is neuroplasticity at its finest. We have hmm. these core memories but then when one of the core memories starts to get get altered, then literally she begins to feel something different. So those of us that have been, you know, drinking and drugging and whatnot, literally the science of neuroplasticity is what we're all doing. We're all, we're all like re- literally rewiring, reconnecting memories because what used to be fun to Lee and Archie, like the, the fun times, like now to, to, to us, that is on most days horrible. Um, mm. That is why when I'll just speak for me, when I see somebody that's in the throes of alcoholism or addiction, it is physically painful to me. It is mm. painful because mm. my brain now is wired to think this is not what I need. Where uh, for a while there, when I was getting, you know, trying to get sober and I would see somebody that was clearly tweaking their mind off. I would get like jonesing. Well, the jonesing is now turned to sadness, but it's it's all it's all science. So it's, well done. It's really fascinating that you just said. You know, we learn something new every day. I just learned something new. So my understanding of neuroplasticity was we have the ability to change and rewire our connections, and we use we don't use the word neuroplasticity that much, but in the Stride Method no. for Addictions, that's what we're doing. We are. Mm. We, we think it's really important that you step into the future almost and feel your future. But I never connected neuroplasticity with rewire, almost like uh, sending out, you know, you know um, these, these like tentacles in your, in your, in your brain to oh, yeah, seek yeah. out memories. You'd, memories. You'd, actually, yeah. you'd actually hidden because they didn't serve you. I never connected that with neuroplasticity. So, so thank you for that. I, I, that helps me see the world in a much different place. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and 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 but what you're doing and the work you're doing and and, and any of us that are you know people that are sexual assault survivors, people that are well, uh, well, actually, all of us now because all of us have experienced trauma at the macro level because of the yeah. pandemic. Like this is fact. This is not my opinion. This is fact. 
like rewiring your brain circuits, it's experience dependent. So what you just talked about of like the, the Christmases and this and this, like you wouldn't be able to conjure or to uh, be able to share memories of positive Christmas if it didn't exist, right? Like you're just going to be, I mean, sh- well, no, no, that, that wouldn't be rewiring your brain. That would just be, that'd be, that'd be fantasy. Um, but because, because I have a positive experience, then I'm, I'm reframing or reappraising that experience. And mm-hmm. so that's the, the horrible times, the times when I would like wake up after being awake for five days and like, I can now go back to that or before I couldn't, I could just remember the fun times. And, but that's, that's taken work and that's taken intentional work. Um, I think what people don't understand is that stopping drinking and stopping using drugs to your point is not about the alcohol or the drug. There's so much there under that is just, that's just the, the symptom. I mean, that's just like, mm-hmm. that's just, there's all this stuff, but working through that stuff takes a lot of very intentional work. And if you do the work, then you can, you know, this joy or the, the, you know, the fancy word of neuroplasticity can, can, um, can occur for you. I was having this, uh, again, I really do talk to my wife tonight. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I was talking to my wife the other day. So th- here's a, a little story that relates, I think, and we can see where it takes us. But um, I got, I'm having like cinema withdrawal symptoms because <laughs> <laughs> my wife says the like the only fun thing I ever want to do with her is take her to the movies to watch some shit she doesn't want to watch. Um, so when when Wonder Woman two they said it was going to come out on HBO Max, I'm like, yeah. I'm nailing that shit. I'm taking out a forty ninety nine <laughs> subscription, right? So me, me and Liza started watching Wonder Woman two, and it's the first yeah. movie that I've got to an hour of it, and I'm like. I can't watch this. It's so shit. It's <laughs> oh. unbelievably shit. But is it anyway, really that bad? Oh. It's so bad, right? It's okay. so bad, so cheesy, so pathetic. But the reason that I wanted to watch it, and, and my point to my story, <laughs> if anybody's seen the trailer, you'll hear it. The trail in the trailer, it goes. Now that's New Order Blue Monday, right? Now, when I grew up and I went clubbing. And that song come on, every cell in your body fired <laughs> up. It fired up, right? Now, here's the yeah. thing about nostalgia. You know, I was talking to this about Liza, uh, to Liza the other day, is we can think about that in very many different ways. We can think to ourselves, wow, when that song come on, my entire body lit up and I was speeding like fuck. And I was on a different planet, and that is why I love drugs. Or I was so drunk, and I remember just being loose on that dance floor. So we can have those memories. Or we can Mm -hmm. say, I was surrounded by human beings, all in various different states of frivolity, which has been scientifically proven to do something really funky to us in a good way. (laughs) That's why gigs, football games, mass people, it's it's good for you, right? So you're in that spot. Music comes on. It your bass is jangling your bones. There's something about music that just gets you going. And now you want to dance. You, you just feel like so super connected to something, right? Why do you have to relate alcohol and drugs to it? So, so mm-hmm. nostalgia. I was saying to Liza, like when we were in our twenties, they were probably the most exciting moments of our life because we were doing shit that was just out of control. We were yeah. taking risks we shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. We were like 
going to clubs, hoping that we would meet someone that we would eventually sleep with. That entire process in itself is so fired up with so many different emotions. It's not bad when you stop drinking to feel nostalgic about those things. Feel nostalgic, but you don't have to relate that I stuck a needle in my arm or I snorted cocaine or I drank alcohol. You you can have those experiences now, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Right. But you've stopped yeah. doing them. And the reason you've stopped doing them is because when you go to the edge of the dance floor, fear overtakes you and you bottle in your feelings. So, Artie, yeah. I'm going to put you in a spot with those oh, people who think they've got wooden yeah. legs and they can't enjoy themselves <laughs> anymore or they can't get intimate or sexy without drinking. Like, how do we help these people unbottle these feelings and start by? explaining to the audience what the hell happened when your top came off when someone shook you up and took the cork off and all your feelings come out what happened how do you deal with it yeah that is a very interesting question um but the good news is for me and then i'm going to parlay this into the the people watching so i went to we're not going to talk about why because that's that takes us down a different path but for better or for worse i went to a private southern baptist university so at this private Southern Baptist University, I never went to a party with alcohol ever. So my collegiate experience is completely different than what most people imagine college to be. And when people when people hear that, they're like, "Well, what did you do?" And I'm like, "We went to <laughs> parties and we had fun and we danced and and we you know there were theme parties and you know the guys and the girls dressed up and we all remembered it the next day now i'm not i'm not dumb enough to think that like there were people that were not drinking you know before they came to the party but people didn't come blackout drunk because well that had been a violation of the university but we also just didn't do it you know yeah. so my college experience was all about having authentic fun without substances and then i used the substances and things went crazy so for for me, like I have a I have a memory to draw back to of like okay right. you know this, this it is it is possible I mean I did it for five years folks, um, and I think I had some damn good fun although I wouldn't have said damn back then, but like I had to become okay with Archie. Now there you know you didn't ask this question but I'm gonna answer it. There are some things that are are tough to work through. Like for me for me personally, sex was was very tied to using. So mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to have sex sober was really hard. I mean, it was really hard. Um, so, you know, there, there are some things that I think are maybe easy to conquer. Like, child, I can go to a dance floor and kiki and do a little twirl twirl and a flop, flop, flop. And I'm <laughs> fine. I'm fine. Like, because I've also become okay with Archie again. But if mm. I, it, let's go back to that story about the dance floor. What I really need to remember was that, you know, there was this club in New York City called the Roxy. Oh my God, I love the Roxy. Just this huge room of like these gay men all on something. Okay. Maybe there were like 10 people that weren't, I don't know. But in reality, we were a room full of people that were running from something. Like you don't, you don't just continually put things in your body, like for fun after a while, the fun stops. So it now just seems sad to me that, that we did that weekend after weekend, after weekend, after weekend, when I could have been actually making relations, I wasn't making, I mean, to your point, I was hoping to mate. Like I wasn't trying to like make a relationship. I was like, who am I going to find to sleep with tonight? Yeah, yeah. Um, and have some fake intimacy because I was high, and so you know, oh my gosh, I love you. Well, I don't even know what your name is. I couldn't even tell you what your last name is, you know, at all. So, you know, Lee's exactly right that there is there is more joy on this side of the shitstorm 
than on the beginning of the shitstorm. You know, and once and once I got through the shitstorm and then learned to be okay with Archie again, it got actually a lot more fun than it was to begin with. How did you learn to get okay with Archie? Uh, uh, for me, uh, lots of therapy. I, and, and again, it's, therapy's not for everyone, but I, I choose to I choose therapy. And being honest about all the stuff, you know, being honest about the suicide attempt, being honest about the fact that like, I actually really do hear voices in my head, like for real. And like today I'm like, I hear voices in my head. And if you don't be my friend, then go away. Like, I can't do anything about that, you know? Uh, and I, I had to get rid of the shame. Like I, I didn't do anything to get depression. I didn't, you know, I just, I just got that lottery number. So here I am. And I, yes, I made the choice as, as my addiction um, progressed, I couldn't lower my standards fast enough to hang out with the people I was hanging out with. Because by the time, in my opinion, by the time you get to like IV drug use, you know, this is not like the cream of the crop. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just, let's just be clear right now. So, you know, I, I couldn't lower my standards fast enough to be around all, all the humans I was around. And I just had to finally own all that. You know, all the shameful things that I did, they're just things. And so we're going to remove the shame from it. We're going to look at it for what it actually was. I was like fucked out of my mind. And so I made these choices. That's just a fact. Let's take the shame away and let's move on. Let's do it right now, Archie. <laughs> I'm putting you right on the spot. Okay. <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what I see in my world is at the heart of not wanting to get on the dance floor really is shame. Your feet are rooted in some shame, <laughs> yeah. right? I, I'm, you know, I, and it's, and it's linked to, I don't want to fit in, right? So I'm going to tell you something I'm ashamed of. Actually, I'm not ashamed of it anymore, but I was ashamed of it the other day. But once I said it, and here's the thing, if you're listening, folks, yeah. you know, how do you kill your shame? You talk about it, right? Yeah. So I'm going to share this one. So until a couple of days ago, I was ashamed to ask my wife to have sex with me because I have a history of asking women to have sex with me a lot. And I'm pretty sure the mathematical score on that is that the no is a lot higher than the yes. And that has somehow turned itself into me becoming a boy. And I behave and act very petulantly, maliciously, um, cynically. I do anything I can to manipulate the change so I get what I want. So when I ever ask for sex, when I'm feeling horny, until a couple of days ago, I feel like I don't want to, I'm ashamed because I know I'm going to get a no. And guess what, Archie? When you feel like that, you're going to get a fucking no, you're right? You're going to get a no. Yeah. Right. So now, now I'm, I go at it in a different way. Now I'm like, okay, it's like I, I've cleared that. Like I actually told my wife, like, I'm ashamed when I ask you for sex, but I'm not going to be ashamed anymore. I'm going to ask you for sex when I want it. And when you don't want it and you tell me no, I'm going to be like, that's cool. I'm going to do some private sex thing in the bedroom <laughs> if that is okay with you. Or I'm just going to, you know, do whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's mine. I'm going to ask you to be very vulnerable and yeah, share sure. something that I've either ashamed of or used to be ashamed of. Yeah. Well, first of all, how was that received? My wife is, um, she's like an Olympic gold medalist in <laughs> holding space and, allowing you to be seen and heard. So I can take any shit to her and she will just, she won't judge me. She just listens to me. She tells me how that makes her feel, but her feelings are not connected to 
me, you know, and then we reach, a, we're able to talk about it and reach a greater understanding of if I want more yeses, then I kind of know what I need to do to get more yeses and when not to ask because I know I'm going to get a no, right? So it opens the gateway to more deeper, intimate connection for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, thanks, Lee. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, so I'm, huh, I'm not ashamed of this anymore, but I'm embarrassed to be talking about it. Does that shame? I'm not really sure. We'll 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 dissect that. There was a point towards the end of my active using when I was in New York, when I was unemployable, and I knew that I was really good at sex, and so I thought, you know. My, my drug dealers need to have sex. This is how we can get drugs. And then that led to, well, you know, well, then if my drug dealers' friends need to have sex, well, then maybe they could pay me for this, this sex. Mm. Um, ooh, I have never spoken about that in public. And there was a lot of shame wrapped up in that, those acts, probably more than anything else, because it, I mean, it, like, how low can I get? Like, that's in my head. I'm like, how low can I get? I was just a very, very active drug addict. And I was fighting a disease that that I didn't know how to tame. Um, and I had no tools in which to tame. And it, it was, you know, really just acts of desperation towards the end. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Well, Archie, thank you very much for allowing me and the people listening to hear something that you've likely told very, very few people. Very few people. I'm going to let my husband know when this I finish. You're going to have like, a conversation like, with your husband. Um, no, yeah. There's a couple of things I want to say on that, if it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I recently spent an hour doing this with 35 people. Actually, it was two hours. 35 people on Zoom, each sharing their wow. sexual shame. We went round once and then everybody was like, I got more, I got more. And it went round again. So the first time round, people were like, I'm not quite sure I want to talk about this. But then when they heard everybody else talk about it, they wanted to go. They felt a compulsion yeah. to go because they, they felt safe all of a sudden to talk yeah. about something and normalize it. And there were a lot of people on there that were talking about being paid for sex. And having mm -hmm. shame to that. And I just want to tell the audience listening, from those 35 people who were from all over the world, sexual shame, any form of sexual shame you could think of was raised there, and it just felt normal. Mm -hmm. It felt normal. The other thing that I want to say uh, for people listening, um, and here's the point of why we're doing this exercise, I feel so much more connected to you, Archie, than I did before we started. Do you know 100%. what I mean? Yeah. Because we've just touched, we've just shared a piece of ourselves that is super vulnerable. So I feel really connected to you. And, and if you're listening to this, that's what it's all about. Yep. So much. First of all, that experience you had, that's phenomenal that people are being given a space in which to do that. Because although I have worked through this shame, I just, it's just, it's a part of my story. I just choose not to talk about. And, and, and I don't really think, I really don't think it is because I'm embarrassed. It is because I fear that for some people in the audience, it's one step too far for them. And they, especially if I'm talking to like um, college fraternity men, mm -hmm. they're going to lean back where up until that point they were leaning in. And so some of it is a, is a, is a choice that I, that I make when I'm speaking to audiences. Um, but I will also say 
that, you know, thank whatever you believe in. Thank you, higher power, that I have found a way to re um, rekindle my speaking career over the internet, which was mm. not easy at all. Yeah. But I believe with all of my heart, the reason that it is um, continued to be successful is because I allow myself every single time to be vulnerable. I talk about overdosing. I talk about being resuscitated. I, 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 I put it out there. And friend, let me tell you, I know, I know you know this is true. When I, when I finish one of those presentations, I'm exhausted. Like mm-hmm. it's exhausting. It's exhausting just laying yourself out there with the hopes that somebody listening does not try to take their own life. Like that's the end goal to every presentation. Like, let me have the hurt for you. Call me. Let's give you some help. But I, there, I've been to so many Zooms where people are just like talking some bullshit. And I'm like, can can I just see you for a second? Can you just like actually show me your actual self for a second? Not, not all this bullshit that you're spouting out there. But connection and vulnerability, you're actually not going to have connection if there's no vulnerability. Like I believe that no. to be 100% mm. true. Mm. Yeah. And this is why it's really important. You know, when you you use the example of IV drug users has it's it's just it's classic like who you hang around with that your growth is going to be related and tethered to who you hang around with and again like there are times in the past where i felt i felt ashamed to talk about that because i didn't want people to think that i was being some sort of big cheese by saying that where i grew up my growth and my development was definitely inhibited by the social construct. And you cannot mention the social construct without mentioning the people who were within that construct and touched by it. And I needed to get the fuck out. Yeah. Um, but to talk about that, uh, like I, I call it small mind, small mind mentality or provincialism, yeah. to yeah. talk about that is very vulnerable. People, and this is a thing that I want to, I want to, um, I want people to, to listen to is very often when you think somebody is being condescending and being a smart ass, if you know that often, if you know much about this person, you can sense that they are a conscious individual at heart, which I think that I am. Please acknowledge that it's a real vulnerable thing to talk about some of these things. It's not self-centered or narcissistic or egoic or coming from a wounded place all of the time. Sometimes it is, but a lot of the times it takes great vulnerability to say, Hey, when I grew up and when I was drinking and my other mates were drinking, they were toxic people for me, even though I loved them. And that's, that takes vulnerability to say that. Yeah. And, but I mean, but that point is so important right now. I mean, people people are soon going to be faced with the decision whether they want to re-engage with people physically. There were, let me, here's the tea. A lot of LGBTQ people, we are real used to like making up excuses to not go home for the holidays because we don't want to have to answer for the hundredth time why we're not married to a woman or why we dress or like any any prospects on that. Well, not that I can talk about with you. So we're mm-hmm. we're real used to that. Well, now kind of the rest of the world got used to like, this is what it feels like. Not if, you know, let me pause. I believe in the science. I believe in Dr. Fauci. My ass stayed at home. Okay. But for people that stayed at home, like they, they got to experience what that was like. Well, now, now humans are being forced with a decision. Am I going to re-engage with these people? And they now know that they are toxic because now that they have not been around them 
they're like, wow, life is really better without this person. Mm-hmm. And so they're being forced with, first with this choice. Am I, you know, well, they're my family. So I got it. no, 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 no. No one else gets to be the person that pulls your strings all the time. If they are, then you literally are walking in the house and saying, here's my strings, pull them. Mm-hmm. Like you, we do have control over that. And I'm, I'm very blessed that, that my parents love Bill and they love, they love Cade. Like I'm very blessed. There's a lot of people in the LGBT community that is not the case for them. Uh, and so I'm not saying that flippantly at all, mm. but I am encouraging you that you do have a choice. We do have a choice in who we get to stay connected to. And just like Lee said, just because we love them does not mean they get to be an active participant in my life. That is not, yeah. that's not what that means. That that's that's super powerful. It's like the pandemic has lowered the bar on vulnerability. It allow <laughs> it actually allows us to be more vulnerable because more people around when we're spewing out the bullshit lines, how you how you doing in opposed to how are you feeling, people are actually saying, I'm doing shit. <laughs> you know, because yeah. well, you know, because they are. So it allows more, you know, people are feeling like they're able to you know, move from doing into feeling and being like, yeah, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm yep. feeling lonely. I'm feeling like, yeah, uncomfortable. So there's that. The other thing that I just wanted to touch on what you said there, Archie, was I think there are, there are three, there are three great shames that uh, I see within, even within my community, which I, I'm always trying to encourage, you know, radical authenticity, but there are three areas that definitely don't get dealt with and a big shame precursors, I think, to addiction. One is sex. We we're just talking about that a little bit. The other one is family. Uh, and the other one is money. And the group that I'm in, we've done the sex thing. We've also done the parenting thing. We haven't done the money thing um, because we're all coaches and entrepreneurs. So we can, it's kind of there anyway for us. But with the, the parenting thing, I'm, I'm kind of at peace that love for me is how people show up in my life, not whether we share the same blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a there's an aspect of me getting on the phone and my mum, here you are, let me put this a different way. Every time I go to bed with my daughter, who never wants to go to bed with me, she always says, I miss my mum. And I always say to her, wow, I bet you do, because she's pretty awesome, right? And she always says, who do you miss? And I always say, I miss my son, because I have a 19-year-old son in the UK, and I haven't seen him for a year because of the pandemic. And she says, uh, yeah, I say, I miss Jude. She says, do you miss your mom? And she's four. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't miss my mom. And she's like, why don't you miss your mom? I'm like, I don't have the same relationship that you do yeah. with your mom. And it isn't my mom's fault. Have you ever have you seen the Ripper documentary on Netflix? Have you ever heard of the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe? Mm-hmm. That's scary. I don't do scary. But so you don't do scary. Me. Okay. But, yeah. He's like the most one of the most notorious serial killers in uh, he killed 13 women a lot of them prostitutes and he started killing when i was born in 75 and he got caught in 81 mm. when i was 6 and i have a memory of my mum and fear and women in that time and i wow. and i watched this documentary and i was like holy shit we grew up in a shit hole we had nothing Everybody fucking struggled, okay? So that allows me to have empathy with my mom and my dad, and but it doesn't slip into love. Mm. There's some, I think, 
It's almost like there's an action. I can have empathy by watching, but I need sure. action for love. I don't know mm-hmm. if you wanted to comment on that at all. Mm. Oh, that's deep. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important to own and be okay with that there are different there are different forms and levels of love. I mean, for me personally, my, my father and I have a strained relationship, but I know that he loves me and I love him. We don't talk on the phone because he's not a phone talker kind of person, but it's, it's really hard growing up in America and like growing up in the time of leave it to beaver and, you know, everything is solved within, you know, 45 minutes and no matter what, what was his name? Cleve, no matter what he did, everything was going to be okay. And like all the lovey, 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 you know, there's this, there's this saying, you know, stop going to the hardware store to try to buy apples. I finally had to be there that like the relationship, these like, you know, these movie relationships people have with their parents, that is not the relationship I'm ever going to have with my father. Mm. And so I need to stop going to that store, trying to buy an apple because what's there is an orange. Now, just because I'm getting an orange, doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. It's just a different form of love. Now, my, my child or our child is going to be the most feeling forward child in the in the world. I mean, how do you have a dad that's the feelings guy? And not, I mean, he's got all kinds <laughs> of feelings. The feelings child. I mean, like, I mean, come on, right? Child. The feelings <laughs> child. Let's just add more names to his name. You know, I, I, I'm trying to do things a little differently. And, and uh, uh, I feel like I also constantly qualify. By the time I finally was, I was adopted. And by the time I finally got to my parents, I was one screwed up little kid. So like, I mean, who knows what they had to work with, um, but regardless, it's an orange and an apple and it doesn't need to be an apple. And for me, a lot of the pain was searching for the apple. Like, how can I make it an apple? It's never going to be an apple because it's a fucking orange. Mm-hmm. So like, it just is what it is. I probably should have picked a, a tool because I was talking about a hardware store, but whatever, the orange came out. I love it. Yeah, the analogy no, still it. works. It reminds me of Don Miguel who is saying, um, if you want a dog, don't buy a cat. It, it, uh-huh. it, it, helped, it helped me deal with the dissolution in my first marriage because it, it made me see that I really, uh, this is a metaphor just in case my ex-wife is listening. I really wanted a cat, but I had a dog and yeah. I really wanted a cat and she just wanted to be a dog. Let's just reaffirm that metaphor piece. This is it is a just metaphor. a metaphor, <laughs> right? Um, and then what I learned was that is <sighs> so disrespectful on so many levels to really, really want a cat and to keep this dog in mm-hmm. in your home, mm-hmm. in the patriarchal mentality that I grew mm-hmm. up in, that I own you. I'm a husband. You're my wife. Right, like what a fucking toxic. I, I I can't even blame my dad for that because I know that he just picked it up off his dad. He picked it up from his dad. He picked it up from his dad. Mm-hmm. But now I have a daughter. I'm just like, girl, <laughs> you are not gonna get into a relationship with anyone <laughs> like that. So like, I'm 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 really super protective over kind of breaking that bullshit nonsense. I see it. I see it everywhere. It's so. I actually think that um, people think they're doing a great job by staying together in relationships when they when they feel no respect, they don't feel seen, they don't feel yeah. heard, but yeah. they're not. Like I, it's because even the person who's not able to give you what what you need, you ain't fucking giving them what they need back. Let them go. Let them go and find somebody else who who is quite happy with them sitting in a chair drinking beer. And, Maybe they won't be sitting in a chair drinking beer. Maybe some spark would be ignited by somebody else. You know, it's like, 
Yep. Uh, a lot of things coming up for me as I'm talking to you is like just this power of societal conditioning, really like just the power like yeah. of societal conditioning is yep. incredible. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly why I'm on this mission to change the way we interact with each other mm. because so this is, this is factual because I've checked my child has a feelings chart at, at school at pre-K. He goes to pre-K. Yeah. The word fine is nowhere on that chart. Fine is actually not a feeling, mm. right? It's, it's, you can Google feeling charts all day long. If y'all find one, send it to me. I haven't found one with the word fine on there. So we, so then where did it come from? Well, it came from society because we are trained not to really give a shit about anybody else. When I say, how are you today? I am praying that you say fine back to me, because if you say fine, then we're done. No connection was made. I don't have to listen to your bullshit. I can move on with like everything I've just said is absolutely true. So, so we need to stop it because I, I believe that if we actually stop and talk about our feelings, we can save lives. I mean, the, the, the suicide numbers in the United States were already going through the roof before the pandemic and the numbers haven't come out yet. And I think it's going to take a while for the data to be actual because of the bump of the, you know, we're all in this together, but we're really not kind of crap we went through. If like a dude's dude, if like my dad, for instance, when, whenever we're all out in public again, if someone said to my dad, hey, Wayne, how you, how you doing today? And he's like, you know what? I'm actually kind of hurting inside. If my father said that and somebody else heard that, like some little boy heard that, it literally just normalized talking about our feelings. But instead, we all just keep doing this bullshit fine thing. And it's got to stop. It, I, I believe it has to stop. Yeah, I just want to amplify what you just said then is the person who is hoping you'll say fine, they just not, they're not ready or willing to be vulnerable. So fine, fine is a vulnerability blocker. You don't have to. So what's happening is all around the world, we're having pseudo conversations in pseudo relationships because it keeps (laughs) us on a path of least resistance that we're happy with. And we can just like, I always say, I, I always say this story. Now, I'll say this hyper quickly because people listen to it probably heard it before, but you haven't, Archie. Is my my mom and dad have drunk all their life, uh, but they've never drunk at home. So so now they're stuck at home together in the pandemic. They're drinking at home, but they're not drinking to connect. They're drinking yeah. because they're looking at each other and they're thinking, what the fuck do I say to this person I've been living with for 60 years? <laughs> Give me a fucking drink. So they have a drink yeah. so they can disconnect, yeah. go into their own little world, and they don't have to talk about anything. They could just fight and argue about Boris Johnson and fucking Donald <laughs> Trump and immigration Trump, yeah. and how, yeah. like, you know, we should just keep all these foreign fuckers out of the country. Doesn't matter. Uh, forget the fact, the part that uh, my son is half Chinese and married to a Korean woman, American. Uh, we'll forget that bit. But <laughs> the rest of these foreign fuckers, yeah. we'll yeah. keep those out of the country. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's that's sad. I I, I think that at the heart... Melanie Joy, I don't know if you've ever heard of Melanie Joy. She's mm-hmm. um, she's an incredible advocate for change in the world around relational literacy. And I really believe what she says, you know, is like at the heart of all of our problems, at a micro level and a macro level, it's a lack of relational literacy. And, and that's what we work on a lot at the Strive Method for Addictions is we mm-hmm. really need mm-hmm. to get better and learning how to communicate and feelings mm-hmm. and learning how to to feel and to express and talk about your feelings is a really important part of that. And Mm -hmm. it's hard. If anybody's ever listened to my three hour 
um, therapy session live on the David Burns Feeling Good podcast, you would have heard in episode three, David Burns and Jill Levitt telling me, Lee, you need to practice expressing how you feel. And I thought I was a world fucking athlete at it. <laughs> right. And then, and then they would say, I'm like, I'm great at it. Go give it a go then. And so I did. And they'd say, no, that's not, you're not actually still not doing it. There's, there, there is a, an innate block there. And I, and I see mm -hmm. it I, in, in, when we do what we have a weekly coaching call on a Monday, Archie, with our coaches and all our strivers, it's come up a lot recently where people are complaining about their partners, but I'm like, so how do you feel? Well, he didn't, he didn't do this and he didn't do that. No, no. How That's did you feel? How did you, and, how and, you feel? And I told him, you know, <laughs> why don't you bring this in? Why don't you do? No, no. How do you, did you tell him how you feel? And, and it's almost like there's a, there's a, a yeah. like, I don't know, like a biological block. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, so once again, um, you have led right into the science because there's so much science behind that. Um, so I just want, I want to underscore what you said about it is a vulnerability blocker. And that is like, like nail head, bang it. And I also want people to understand that like, I, so I actually am like when I call the people, when I call the credit card company or whoever, like, hello, sir, can I have the last four digits of your social? I'm like, well, actually, I'll start with how you're feeling today. And they're like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, what? I'm like, how, how are you feeling? Um, they're like, uh, I mean, because it throws them for a second and I love it because it le it lets that person know that I give a shit about them. So I do it all the time. Well, I try to do it all the time. Um, but like it targets sometimes. Sure. If like somebody, if the, one of the target people says, hello, sir, how are you doing today? I, I might say fine. Okay. I'm going to be honest. That that's like situational conversation that, that, you know, okay. Happens. The problem though is that we have no practice then having the real conversation at home. So if I were a human that lived in that situ situational interaction, like that, fine, fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. So then Bill does something, my husband does something to royally piss me off. I don't know, like he doesn't take the trash out or he doesn't put the dishes in the dishwasher, like, you know, those sorts of things. And if I have no practice, then Bill says, hey, hey, are, honey, are you, are you okay? Because you seem a little distant. No, I'm fine. Yeah. Instead of saying, Yes. How many times do I have to tell you the dirty dishes go in the dishwasher? Can we, because I'm, I'm feeling that, that I'm, that you're just expecting me to do it. That's how I'm feeling. Mm. And then he'll be like, well, no, I was going to do it later. So it, you know, but, but expectations, I have that expectation. So I begin to have resentment. So there really is some science to this practicing because when we do want to uh, actually build intimacy with someone, we got no practice taking the walls down. We just say, I'm fine. That is a massively important point for people listening, folks, like real gold dust. How many of you listening right now are avid listeners to podcasts and readers of books and you light bulbs go off? You're like, oh, right. I need to do this. Oh, right. I need to behave like that. Oh, right. I need to put this in place. But how many of you actually practice and implement? Practice. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I think uh, an episode just before Archie's comes out, it's called implementation. It's just a monologue. And it's me saying we need to implement shit. So a good example aligned to what Archie says there is very often we will, we will try not to drink and then we'll get triggered. So we will use our toolkit to try not to drink, but it's not, a, it's not sufficient enough. And we'll say it doesn't work. Well, okay, here's the thing today, right? Today, everybody listening today, you will experience a heightening of your emotions and your feelings to a decibel that you are uncomfortable with 
but you won't want to drink alcohol. That, my friend, is the time when you use your trigger toolkit because you are practicing. Oh, my God, I just got really fucking angry uh, at the kids. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm never going to drink at 10 o'clock in the morning, but I'm so fucking angry. Okay, use your trigger toolkit. Do your breathing, have your meditation, go for it. So when you do want to drink and you've got a fucking nine out of 10 trigger, it's just boom, boom, boom. I know how to do it. And it's the same what Archie's saying. If you practice asking people, how are you feeling? Not how are you doing? And having those conversations with complete strangers, boom. When it matters, you're going to have it there in the back. Implementation practice, really important. Archie? Yeah, the dog's just barked. So I tried to mute it. It's okay. okay. Your dog, your dog is in tune with me (laughs) from a different level. He's saying it's time to go. Because I was stressing. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I always know when it's time to leave a podcast episode because I'm always dying for a pee. Um, But Archie, (laughs) I just wanted to say um, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate the vulnerability you've shown and um, practicing that art and being an inspiration for people to show that when you do that, it is uncomfortable. It is a little fearful, but we can do it and we don't fall apart and die at the end of it. So thank (laughs) you for that. Um, if you want to learn more about Archie's work, you want to figure out what he's doing with his Zoom speeches because he's obviously not going to be about as much these days, or you want to work with him personally, go to www.1000daysober.com, the podcast page, find Archie's little segment, and you'll be able to check him out. Anything else you want to say before I let you go, Archie? No, it's, it's been an honor to talk to you. And, you know, it's funny, I feel way, like the connection to you you know, whatever this is 45 minutes later than it was 45 minutes ago is completely different. And I, I hope that we get to connect again. Yeah, definitely. And this, that's what it's all about, isn't it? You, 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 we're feeling, we're feeling something, man. That's right. All right. Thank you, Archie. If you want to be somebody that doesn't drink alcohol or recover from any other addiction, improve your relationship with yourself and those that you love, or just want to learn to live a more conscious life, then here is what we can do to help you at 1000 Days Sober. Number one, we have a Strive subscription service, okay? So you pay a monthly fee, you come and join us, you come into our community, you get access to all our Marco Polo groups, you get access to our Kajabi group, you get access to uh, content that you will not see in the public sphere, mainly by yours truly, but by other people in my network are friends as well. What else do you get? You get access to a weekly coaching call with myself. So you can get coaching, a one-on-one coaching with me on that weekly coaching call. And you get money off various different workshops and uh, invites to lots of other free stuff. So that's our subscription service. You could do group coaching programs, okay? Right now we have two group coaching programs, both called the Strive Method. The first one is addictions, okay? And they last for six months. The relationship course also lasts for six months. We've got Strive Method for Addictions, Strive Method for Relationships. There are workshops, okay? Or you can work with me personally one-on-one, okay? You can work with me personally one-on-one. And if you want to get involved in any of that, then just head to www.1000daysober.com and you will find everything that's going on there, okay? We have pages there on the website, which will direct you in the right place and how to get older me, including a workshop space there as well. We're always running workshops, so you can sign up for those as well. Last but not least, if you do love this show and it has changed your life and you want to change the lives of somebody else, tell somebody about it and rate and review it in your podcast provider. I would really appreciate that. If you want to just reach out to me, ask me a question, just email me, 1kdaysober 
gmail.com. Ah, at gmail.com. Much love, everybody. Bye.